If you have your Bibles with you, I invite you to open up to Genesis chapter 21. Genesis chapter 21. We are now getting to the uh, some really good parts in Genesis. Not that the other ones haven't been, but we're sort of at this, this moment that we've been anticipating, really, since Genesis chapter 3. We'll get into that a little bit more. Uh, but we're going to be in Genesis chapter 21. Uh, if you have your Bible, I'd like you to follow along. If you didn't bring your Bible today, that's fine. The, the uh, passage will be there up on the screen. Then you can follow along in that way. But Genesis 21... Uh, we will be looking at uh, verses 1 through 21. Follow along with me. This is what uh, Moses wrote under the, whole, the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. The Lord came to Sarah, as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah what he had promised. Sarah became pregnant and bore a son to Abraham in his old age at the appointed time that God had told him. Abraham named his son who was born to him, the one who Sarah bore to him, Isaac. When his son Isaac was eight days old, Abraham circumcised him as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born. Sarah said, God has made me laugh, and everyone who hears will laugh with me. She also said, Who would have told Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne a son for him in his old age." The child grew and was weaned, and Abraham held a great feast on the day that he was weaned, but Sarah saw the son mocking, the one Hagar the Egyptian had borne to Abraham. So she said to Abraham, Drive out this slave with her son, for the son of this slave will not be co-heir with my son Isaac. This was very distressing to Abraham because of his son. But God said to Abraham, do not be distressed about the boy and your slave. Whatever Sarah says to you, listen to her, because your offspring will be traced through Isaac. And I will also make a, a nation of the slave's son, because he is your offspring. Early in the morning, Abraham got up, took bread and water skin, and put them on Hagar's shoulders, and sent her and the boy away. She left and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. When the water in the skin was gone, she left the boy under one of the bushes and went and sat at a distance about a bowshot away, for she said, I can't bear to watch this boy die. And when she sat at a distance, she wept loudly. God heard the boy crying, and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What's wrong, Hagar? Don't be afraid, for God has heard the boy crying from the place where he is. Get up, help the boy up, and grasp his hand, for I will make him a great nation. Then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well. So she went and filled the water skin and gave the boy a drink. God was with the boy, and he grew, and settled in the wilderness and became an archer. He settled in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother got a wife for him from the land of Egypt. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what this narrative tells us, would you help us to understand in not only the context that, uh, that it falls in, but also that we would uh, find ourselves in this story and that we, would, uh, that we would see Christ as well as our great Redeemer, our Savior and friend. And it's in his name that I ask this. Amen.
You know, I've met a lot of people who, uh, who don't like certain things. You know, I've, I've met uh, people uh, who don't like cleaning, or maybe there's people who don't like uh, going to the dentist, or there are some people that really don't appreciate awkward situations. Um, some people don't like amusement parks. Some people don't like black licorice candy. Uh, some people just don't like to, to work. But I have never once met someone that doesn't like to laugh. I'm sure they're out there they're somewhere, but I've never met anyone like that. You know, most of us can sympathize with, uh, with Bert and Uncle Albert in the movie Mary Poppins. Remember that scene when, when they're, they're singing and, and they're singing the song, I Love to Laugh, and the more that they laugh, the more they start floating, and, and uh, Mary Poppins can't even get them down because they're laughing so hard. And many of us love to laugh. It's why sitcoms exist. It's why America's Funniest Home Videos has been on for 30 years now. But as much as we love to laugh, we have to admit that there is a difference between good laughter and, and bad laughter. In our text this morning, we're going to find out that uh, there is something worth truly laughing about. And it's not the latest dad joke, for as great as those jokes are. Uh, it is a joy-filled jubilation when we understand and internalize what God has done in fulfilling his promise to Abraham and to us in the person of Jesus Christ. This morning we, we look at uh, uh, Abraham and Sarah who have been waiting their entire lives for this very moment and now it's come and they, they celebrate with, with laughter. Laughter at God's goodness to them. And we also find ourselves here in this, this story as well. Our broken lives can be redeemed by the joy that comes with the hope that is in Christ alone. And to do that, we must look at three things. The first thing is, is that we must delight in the God who fulfills his promises. Delight in the God who fulfills his promises. The 21st chapter of Genesis, it really details uh, the most anticipated event of Scripture up to this point. Ever since Genesis chapter 3, the reader has been eagerly looking forward to the one that God has promised to Eve. They're looking forward to the one that history would look to for victory over evil and would restore the creation to what it was supposed to be all the way back in Genesis before the, the Garden of Eden and before sin entered the world. And uh, of all the potential heroes that we've seen up to this point, whether it be Adam or whether it be Shem or whether it be, uh, uh, whether it be uh, Noah or even Abraham, all of them have fallen woefully short of our expectations. In Genesis chapter 12, God called an unexpecting, uh, unexpected man, a man who was a sun and a moon worshiper, and asked him to follow him into a land that uh, he didn't know, but God would tell him where it was. 
But in faith, Abraham gave up his idolatry to follow this God. Yes, there were some major bumps in the road. There were some sins that happened. There were some, uh, some pains and some life struggles, uh, maybe some broken hearts and some refining moments for Abraham and Sarah. But the birth of Isaac uh, proved to Abraham that God is indeed trustworthy and he makes good on his word. Verses 1 and 2 show us that God not only proves that he is good on his word in just the normal everyday things that you and I experience, but he's also uh, worthy of our praise and our trust in the big things of life. Remember uh, when God first called Abraham, he called him when he was 75 years old. His wife was roughly 65 he called a struggling, broken-hearted, infertile couple who are beyond the years of hope of having any children. And he calls them to follow them and that he would make nations come from him. And here we are in Genesis 21, 25 years later, after he had given Abraham this promise. Abraham is 100 years old. Sarah is 90 years old at this time. And they are taking care of an infant. An infant that was not born by some uh, surrogate uh, slave woman, but an infant that came from Sarah. Why would God wait 25 years for this hap to happen. Why would, why would God not just say to Abraham, go into the land that I call you to, and as soon as you get there, just start making babies. I'm going to make it happen. Why would he want them to experience heartbreak? To spend countless days, years, 25 years of setbacks and wonderings if God was actually worthy of trusting in his word. Why does he sometimes call us into that same thing? Why does he put us into waiting? Why does he put us in situations where we are forced, perhaps for a long time, to wonder if God is indeed good on his word? Well, I think for, for Abraham and, and, and Sarah, at least, in, in their context, it is showing that God is refining them. He is allowing them to go through these things so that they can learn that God doesn't need their help. He was teaching them that they have nothing to contribute to God's plan other than to trust him that he would make good on his word. And he is teaching them that he is indeed worthy of their trust. You know, God is like that. God will sometimes hold back his promises. It doesn't mean that he isn't going to make good on them, but God will sometimes hold them back Sometimes he will break us down to our bare bones and expose our self-sufficiency and expose our lack of trust to finally realize that God doesn't need our help. He is bigger than that. 
He breaks our sense of of self-reliance and binds us together rather in faith and trust. He is teaching us that God is worthy to abandon ourselves and to trust him. I want to suggest to you that there may be times in your life in which you may not know that God is all you need and that God is all that you can depend on until you have nothing but God. God is certainly at work in the everyday, hour-by-hour, minute-by-minute details of life, but he often shows his, his trustworthiness and his faithfulness in times when it can only be seen as him doing the work. Times in which it cannot be, contrib- it cannot be attributed to any human effort. Now, throughout all their heartbreak and suffering, uh, Abraham and Sarah, they realize uh, God's goodness and his sufficiency and his trustworthiness as uh, they stare into the face of this, this cooing baby. But as they are gazing into the realization of, of God's promises to them, Scripture will later tell and show us that the future of Abraham's promise that God gave to him is not bound up in this baby Isaac. Rather, as they're gazing at this child, they are looking 2,000 years down the road when a baby would be born not to a 90-year-old woman, but to a teenage virgin. And this baby would be uh, none other than God himself. This baby was not only just the one that Genesis chapter 3 was looking forward to, the one that would crush the the, the skull of, of the snake, but this would be God in the flesh. Jesus Christ, a baby that was conceived in the womb of a virgin. And this baby conceived in that way, would go on to live a perfect life that, that we couldn't live, to die a death that we deserved, to be raised in victory over sin and death, and to ascend to heaven and reign over all of the universe today. The joy that this um, new father Abraham has when he's looking into the beautiful eyes of this baby Jesus says in John chapter 8, verse 56, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it and was glad. So in saying that, Abraham was looking forward to the day when not just Isaac would come, but the full realization of God's promises in Christ Jesus. And that day that Abraham was looking towards, we now have the privilege of living in forgiveness of our sins, the redemption 
of what we have done, said, and thought, the, the reversal of the curse, the lifting of the shame and the guilt that we live with every single day is found by trusting in Christ Jesus and him alone. What Abraham saw in theory, you and I see in word and deed in the recounting of Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and ascension. And with that, Jesus changes lives. He can change your life today. Trust in him and delight in him who fulfills his promises. But a second thing we need to do is we need to diagnose our laughter. Diagnose your laughter. How do you react when something amazing or uh, incredible happens in your life? You know, maybe you're one of those people that you're just sort of speechless and like your jaw just sort of falls to the ground of, oh, I can't believe that. Or maybe you are uh, one of those that you just freeze in thought because it, it's just so wonderful to you. You can't really do anything else. Or maybe uh, you're one of those that, that you have to do like a double take, I can't believe that happened, or you need to pinch yourself, or, or whatever the case is. You know, uh, for, for me, uh, when I see something marvelous and wonderful, my tendency is actually to, to sort of chuckle, is to sort of laugh. You know, I think a, a couple years ago, uh, you know, when, uh, well, when the Vikings had pulled off the Minnesota Miracle, you think about that? Remember when Case Keenum, he threw that pass and, and Stefan Diggs, he jumps up and he catches it and the guy falls to the ground. The crowd's going wild and, and the announcers are going wild and Stefan Diggs runs into the end zone and I couldn't help but, but laugh. And it wasn't a, well, it was maybe a little malicious laugh at the Saints, but for the most part, it was, uh, it was such happiness because we thought that that was it, that the season was over. They only had one more week left, but at least at that moment, it was a, a jubilant sort of uh, feeling. And in these verses, Sarah's reaction is quite the same. Look with me in verses uh, 6 through 7. It says that God has made me laugh, and everyone who hears will laugh with me. She also said, who would have told Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne a son for him in his old age. Now, some commentators are quick to look at these, uh, these words here, and they, uh, they say that along with Sarah's laughter, the way that the language was written, it's more like a lyric to a song. And so here, not only is Sarah laughing in her joy, but she's also, uh, she's also singing her laughter and singing points to the reality of God's faithfulness. When, when Abraham had... Um, uh, and Sarah had originally heard God's promises that they would indeed have a son from their very own, uh, very own bodies. Their reaction was much the same. It was laughter. But at that point, if you remember back a few chapters ago, it was the laughter of unbelief. <laughs> You're right. You're going to have a baby come from a 90-year-old. Get real. But here this laughter is complete joy and belief because they have the proof of God's power right in front of them. God is good on his word. 
But here now they are they're laughing in, in faith and they have Isaac's name to match that because Isaac literally means he laughs. And they're just enjoying it. But as the, the laughter of uh, Abraham and Sarah uh, traded for the routines of um, changing, I don't know if they didn't have diapers back then, but whatever they, you know, of, the, of, of normal, everyday uh, helping the child, they hear yet another kind of laughter that, that is coming from, from the distance. It, it, it's, it's a different kind of laughter than they've heard in the walls of their, their tent. It's not the laughter of faith. It's the laughter of mockery. Look in verses 8 through 10. The child grew and was weaned, and Abraham held a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son mocking, the one Hagar the Egyptian had borne to Abraham. So she said to Abraham, Drive out this slave woman, uh, the slave with her son, for the son of the slave will not be co heir with my son Isaac. Now, we have to read these verses a little carefully because it, the tendency would be to read Sarah's reaction in light of her reaction all the way back in Genesis chapter 16. If you remember back in 16, Sarah was so convinced that God could not possibly have uh, uh, a, a, a baby come through a 90-year-old woman uh, that uh, she, she sent uh, 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 Hagar, her slave, to be Abraham's wife so that she could be a surrogate mother for Abraham and maybe, just maybe, the child that they have together would actually be the promise because, after all, God never said anything originally about Sarah being the one who bore the promises, but rather just Abraham. And so when this baby Ishmael came, Sarah got really jealous of uh, so jealous of Hagar that she had told Abraham to, to get rid of Hagar and she abused Hagar until uh, Hagar, Hagar left. In that act, Sarah is sinfully dealing with the consequences of her own foolish decision. But in chapter 21, there's no jealousy here with Ishmael. In chapter 21, she's a woman of faith that is protecting her family and sees a legitimate threat and seeks to get rid of this threat. When the text says that the son of Hagar was laughing, it's not as if this, this 15-year-old uh, Ishmael is uh, giggling with the baby on the floor as they play with toys. Rather, the text actually uses a really intense form of the word Isaac, such an intense form that it, uh, it generally was a negative term which meant like derision or ridicule or mockery. In fact, if you look into Galatians chapter 4, which we'll do here in just a little bit, Paul says that Ishmael actually persecuted Isaac. Now in verse 8, it says that the child grew and was weaned, and Abraham held a great feast on the day that Isaac was, was weaned. This, was, this is a really important detail because at this time, child mortality rates were incredibly high. If, if you survived as an infant, then you were one of the lucky ones. The child would, would breastfeed for about uh, three years and, uh, in this culture, and if the child survived, it would be 
a, a celebratory event that this child is now weaned and eating on their own and that they're able to thrive and to live by themselves with obviously the help of their parents. And there's a celebration here. The dangerous situation for the infant is now subsided, but yet another dangerous situation shows up. And that is the danger of Ishmael. This laughter is sinister in nature and it must be confronted. So in order to protect the promise, Sarah would do what uh, we would think every good mother would do and that would be to rid the house of evil. Protect her family. To save her child in this way. It wasn't a pleasing idea to Abraham, obviously, because Ishmael was, in fact, his son. And for uh, perhaps 14 years, 13, 14 years, whatever it was, Abraham had possibly been convinced that this boy maybe was the, the promised one, the one that was to carry on the promise of God. But because the promise rests on Isaac, God intervenes and tells Abraham that Sarah is right. Hagar and Ishmael have to go. They have to go. Abraham obliges, and, and as he does, he gives provisions to them, and their laughter of unbelief has been cast away. Much like Jesus tells us many years down the road, that he will cast away those who refuse to trust in him. Now, before I ask you the obvious question, we need to pursue it just a, a little bit further and see how Paul dealt with this text. So if you, uh, if you could, keep a finger or keep your ribbon in Genesis 21, but I want you to turn to Galatians chapter 4 with me for just a moment. Galatians chapter 4 is in the New Testament. Uh, if you hit uh, the Corinthians, um, it is right after 2 Corinthians. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Acts, Romans, 1 and 2 Corinthians, Galatians. And in Galatians chapter 4, beginning in verse 21, Paul writes this. Tell me, you who want to be under the law... Don't you hear the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave and the other by a free woman. But the one by the slave was born as a result of the flesh, while the other one by the free woman was born through promise. These things are being taken figuratively, for the women represent two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai and bears children into slavery. This is Hagar. Now, Hagar represents Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother, for it is written, Rejoice, childless woman, unable to give birth. Burst into song and shout, you who are not in labor, for the children of the desolate woman will be many, and more numerous than those of the woman who has a husband." Now you too, brothers and sisters, like Isaac, are children of the promise. But just as the, then the child born as a result of the flesh, meaning Ishmael, persecuted the one born as a result of the spirit, 
Isaac. So also now. But what does the scripture say? Drive out the slave and her son, for the son of the slave will never be a co-heir with the son of the free woman. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we are not children of a slave, but we are children of a free woman. So we have to understand now that Galatians here uh, is a letter in which Paul is laboring to defend uh, the gospel against our natural inclination to think that we can save ourselves. He is trying to defend the idea that God loves us not because of anything intrinsic in us or not because of anything that we have done, but simply because he does. Because he's a loving God and he loves his creation and, he say, and we are saved according to his grace. It is so natural for us to want to rely on our own goodness and our own merit in order to be right with God, but that is not the gospel. That is called legalism. And legalism is the idea that you rely on the law or keeping rules in order to be righteous. It is the idea that you can earn favor with God on your own. And Paul says that that is actually anti-gospel. It is not the truth that will get us saved. He goes further in, in chapter 4 by juxtaposing uh, Isaac and Ishmael. He says that Ishmael, born to Hagar, represents our tendency to want to live on our own. It represents our legalism. To be our own person. To earn God's favor on our terms. On our goodness. And he represents our legalism towards salvation. I mean, after all, our, uh, the situation with Ishmael, did it not come from Abraham's own efforts to bring about God's promises? And notice that he compares it to Isaac. And Isaac's birth can only be attributed to the work of the Holy Spirit. Paul then says that this is how we receive God's promise of redemption and forgiveness. Not by works, but by God's grace through faith. So I ask you now, what are you laughing at? How would you diagnose your, your laughter? You might not be here this morning literally laughing, but there may be a, a few of us this morning that when we got serious about it, our laughter is much more like Ishmael. Banking your future with God on your own goodness and your own self-righteousness and the things that you have done to get right with God. But Scripture tells us that God has provided only one way to be right with Him. And that is by His grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And when we rely on our own goodness, when we think that we can conjure up salvation ourselves, what we are rather doing is laughing mockingly at God. And saying that his plan of salvation isn't good enough. 
that the only thing is good enough is me and my ingenuity. I can do it on my own. So are you laughing through self-righteousness this morning? Mockery of God's grace? Or are you laughing with those who are of the faith this morning, who chuckle as they sing, amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? What amazing news. Through Christ Jesus alone, those who laugh the laugh of faith are children of the promise and will never be cast out. So we need to diagnose our laughter. But thirdly, we also need to be driven by the wonder of God's grace. Be driven by the wonder of God's grace. The story here of of Hagar takes a tragic turn as she leaves the presence of Abraham and Sarah, and it's obvious that, that they're moving uh, southwest towards Egypt, which Hagar was, was apparently from, and the provisions that Abraham had gave to her and to Ishmael uh, to get where they were going had obviously uh, run out, and as they made their, their journey through the wilderness, uh, the, these two, this mother and the son, are under the impression that the, the, the drink that they're going to take from this canteen is going to be the, the last drink that they ever take. But God had other plans for Hagar and Ishmael. The text alludes to, to them crying out to the Lord in desperation. And as we have seen before, crying out to God in desperation is the exact frequency that God tunes his ears to. He is looking for those who are weak. He is looking for those who are needy. He is looking for those ones that have no help in themselves, no resources outside of themselves other than God. Verse 17, it says, God heard the boy crying, and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, what's wrong, Hagar? Don't be afraid. For God has heard the boy crying from the place he is. Get up, help the boy up, grasp his hand, for I will make him into a great nation. And so what this shows us here is that God has not forgotten Hagar or Ishmael. As far as they're cast out, God still cares about them. And he says that they have a future that he has prepared for them. For the verse 19 shows God's provisional care. Look in verse 19. God opened her eyes... She saw a well, for she went and filled, so she went and filled the water skin and gave the boy a drink. And if we were to stop here, we would see that all is well that ends well, right? It looks like things are going to go pretty well for them. They're getting back to health. Things are, are looking a little better uh, for them, but all is not well with them. Uh, these two actually fall into a pit, not a literal pit by any means, but one that is all too common. There is this tendency for us that as blessings increase in our lives, that our wonder and awe and spiritual health begins to decline. As life seems to be going well, the tendency to rely on God 
tends to get much lower. And Ishmael will become this wild donkey of a man that, that God said he would be in, in chapter 16. And at the end, uh, it says that Hagar went out and found an Egyptian wife for him. Now, that's a significant detail. Ian Dugweed writes this. He says, This may not seem like an important point until you remember that throughout the story of Abraham, Egypt represents the temptation to abandon the promised land. Abraham would go to great length to find a suitable wife for Isaac from among his own kinfolk. But Ishmael had no interest in the spiritual inheritance that he might have received from Abraham. He was content so long as his earthly needs were met. An Egyptian wife would do just fine for Ishmael. I wonder how many of us share a similar sentiment. That if there's food in the fridge, there's stuff in the cupboards, there's water to drink, a house to live in, all is well, we're content. That we don't care so much about God and what he wants of us. Second Peter chapter 1, Peter tells us that his divine power has given us everything required for life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Similarly, in, in 1 Timothy chapter 6, Paul tells us, God who richly provides us with all things to enjoy. Did you hear that? God provides everything for us, for life and for godliness, and he gives us all things for us to enjoy. It's as if God has placed before you and I uh, this, the, the, the richest of buffets for us to enjoy. And it's got the choicest of meat. It's got the richest of delicacies. The greatest Thanksgiving meal that you could ever desire. But yet, we are content to just take juice and a donut. He is giving us the greatest things. But we're so easily satisfied by lesser things. We have a filet mignon grilled to perfection. But we would rather have a Twinkie. Folks, that's what life is like. God offers us everything we need, but yet we would choose lesser things than him. Some of us have lost the wonder of God's grace and settle for presumption and apathy. I love what C.S. Lewis writes. He says, Indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised to us in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when an infinite joy is offered to us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. We are far too easily pleased. Lewis was a genius. So I ask you, how do you keep the wonder? 
How do we keep God's amazing grace from slipping through our fingers? I think one thing we ought to do is we have to continue to remind ourselves of the gospel. Remind ourselves day by day, minute by minute, hour by hour, to remind ourselves how we were once like Ishmael, spurning the grace of God, mocking him, shaking our fist at him. But because of God and his rich and deep love for us, he made us children of the promise through the death of his own son. It's to remind us of of who we are and what we deserved and rather to look to Christ on the cross and say, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was, I once was, uh, (laughs) boy, how about that? I've sung the song a million times and I need to look at it. I once was lost, but now am found. I was blind, but now I see. I hope that, that the lyrics of that song still pierce your soul every time that you sing it. That God, the maker of all things, the one who sustains everything by the power of his hand, that he would condescend himself to to come in human flesh and to die a torturous death so that we can be redeemed and be friends with him. You know, leading up to the birth of a child is is, uh, a highly anticipated event. We've gone through it a few times at our house and it's very exciting. There, there's ups and downs. Sometimes there's worries and, and struggles. And, but the, you know, the birth of Isaac upstages any other birth this point up in the Scripture. The birth of Christ would be a day of greater rejoicing. The promised seed of Abraham, the seed of the woman that was promised all the way back, in Genesis chapter 3, has come to be a blessing to you and to me. He has come to be a friend of sinners. He has come to be a savior of all. Delight in the fact that God has kept his promise to you by sending Christ Jesus on your behalf. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, as we enter into the season of, of thanks and remembering your, the birth of your Son as we go into Christmas season, Lord, let us not forget, Lord, that we were one day like Ishmael. We were sons and daughters of the slave woman trying to live our lives as we wanted to in order to live lives as we wanted to, but also because of our uh, misunderstanding that we can live life independently from you. But Lord, your word has told us that we can't live independent of you. And so, Father, I pray that you would 
break our self-sufficiency? Would you take those legs right out from under us? Would you help us to lean on the grace and mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ and him alone, that we would have faith in him, that indeed he redeems from the curse and we are made new in him. If there are some that are here today, Lord, that have not received that grace, would you send your spirit to them right now to open up their hearts that they would have faith and would live in joyful thankfulness that the baby had come, born of a virgin, lived a sinless life, died the death that we deserved, rose in victory, and now lives and reigns in heaven today. And we pray this in the matchless name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen. We're going to do a special song uh, as we close, and we're going to ask you to stay seated as we, uh, as we sing. Janelle and I are going to be singing a song, um, Merciful, Wonderful Savior. And this is a prayer. If you um, listen to the words, and we're talking about our almighty, infinite Father, and after we finish, um, we're actually going to have you stand, and we'll sing the chorus together a couple times, but um, sing clear.
times. Let's pray together. Father, you are the one that we praise. You're the one that we adore. Lord, we leave this place uh, in, that, uh, in that awe of you. Lord, would you continually help us to refresh our minds, our spirits, uh, to know the grace and the wonder that is in Jesus Christ. May we leave this place and have all of our days singing, Hallelujah, what a Savior. You are the one that we praise. You are the one that we adore. And so, Father, we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Just a reminder that uh, the chairs do not need to be stacked today. And uh, ladies, the...